Hello, and welcome back to View the Devil in D&D. I'm Lindsay, I use she, her pronouns. I'm Ryan, I use he, him pronouns. And today we are going to be doing part one of the soundtrack of the Satanic Panic and just moral outrages in general, where we try to go through a whole bunch of different artists and why they got in trouble with organizations like the Parents Music Resource Center, or just, you know, got in trouble in general. Why people got big mad at them. People listen to music, and they hear it, and they go, hmm. 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 Yeah. So, when I say part one, I mean part one, because we're going to be doing, like, 19 different artists. There is 39 bands and, and artists in total that we have done research on. That's a lot of ground to cover in one episode. So we're going to split and this one up. there's a couple here. There's a couple here where we're going to come back and do, like, full episodes just on them. There, there's a lot for a couple. Yeah. So, right off the top, how about we talk about Black Sabbath? Yes, Black Sabbath, one of the one of the big members of the British wave of heavy metal music. They were founded in Birmingham, West Midlands, England, and they were active between 1968 to 2006, reunited in 2011, and then called it in 2017. So, the reason why they were a big target of the, of the Satanic Panic was because of their, well, name and also their dark and lyrics. The bassist and songwriter, one of the main song, songwriters, Geezer Butler, who, should be noted, was raised Irish Catholic, um, brought a lot of his personal interest in mythology and the occult to the band. Uh, he read books by Aleister Crowley and Dennis Wheatley, who should be noted. Um, Wheatley was a conservative monarchist who was accused of fascist sympathies in the 1930s, given that he spoke positively about Francesco Franco and Benito Mussolini and thought that communism was demonic. <laughs> Interesting. Hi. Yeah, yeah, he saw demons everywhere. Um, one of his books was adapted into The Devil Rides Out, which had uh, Christopher Lee in it, um, one of the classic camera horror films. We might talk about that in, like, a movies of the satanic panic thing. Um, anyway, back to Black Sabbath. So, aside from Dennis Wheatley and Aleister Crowley, um, these guys were also interested in, like, Tolkien and Lovecraft and all that sort of good nerd shit. And then in the early 70s, an American nurse took her own life and was found with a Black Sabbath with Black Sabbath's second album, Paranoid, on her turntable. And um, there was... Yeah, that that was kind of scary. And like people were like, mm, what's, uh, what's going on with that? So, so they got... It, they were brought up in the Death Inquest. Um, but it was ultimately decided that the album had no part in her death. And Tony Iommi, the band's lead guitarist, said, quote, A lot of the words in the songs, a lot of the moods of the songs are aggressive, especially in the early days. Satanic, if you like. That was the way it felt. So that was the way we played. 
but it got out of hand. With Paranoid in England, for instance, there was a girl found dead, a nurse, she was she was dead in her room with an el- with our album on the turntable going round. And it was taken to court saying it was because of the album that she was depressed and killed herself, which was totally fucking ridiculous, I think. And he's, he's right. Like, I, I don't know, maybe it was pure coincidence. Maybe that was part of her plan. It, the album might not have had anything to do with her depression. People will look for any sort of reason. Like, mm-hmm. it, it's just nuts. It's an insanity. Yeah. So later on in 1982, uh, Ezer Butler did an interview with uh, the new music and said, quote, if the moral majority didn't understand it, they'll try to put it put it down or get other people to read all sorts of things into it. The moral majority sort of people pick up on the satanic part of it. I mean, most of it was about stopping wars and that side of it and some science fiction stuff. There wasn't much satanic stuff, and what there was wasn't exactly for the devil or anything like that. It was just around at the time, and we just brought it to people's attention, unquote. Also, wasn't Black Sabbath where, like, the devil horns was originated? I I, I believe so, yes. Yeah, yeah, I think it was after Ozzy. Um, Who was there? Ronnie James Dio. Yeah, I I remember seeing an interview with him where he said that he got it from his Italian grandmother because, like, the devil horns you used to, like, take away the evil eye. And, of course, people are like, ooh, devil's horns. It's like, mm-hmm. and, like, going to such elaborate levels of saying, like, it's the three sexes of the devil in your hands. It's like, no, it's just something that your Nona does. So, also speaking of Black Sabbath, Ozzy! Ozzy! <laughs> he was born John Michael Osborne. Didn't, uh, he doesn't look like a John. He doesn't look like no. John at all. No. Uh, December I think 3rd, from birth he was called Ozzy. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> born December 3rd, 1948 in Marston Green, Warwickshire, England. He's been active since 1967. Now he's act- honestly, it feels like he's had a resurgence uh, with his mm-hmm. recent album, Patient Number Nine. I mean, he's gotten everyone on that fucking thing. We're, we're, yeah. we're literally playing the song that he has uh, Eric Clapton on. And it's like, wow, damn shit. He, 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 yeah, nice. nice. Uh, known for his heavy metal, glam metal, hard rock, even a little bit of doom metal. Mm hmm. And he kind of brought the satanic accusations on himself. A little bit. Yeah. Ozzy just likes attention. The man craves yeah. it. Yeah. And it doesn't <laughs> help that the booze and drugs don't exactly are not exactly conducive to good decision making. Oh, absolutely not. Yeah. Like, um, there was that time he bit off the head of a bat that was thrown on stage and there was some confusion on whether or not it was alive okay but first of all who brought the bat who thought hmm, i'm going to ozzy show i'm bringing the bat with me <laughs> yeah what was that guy thinking and then he also like 
bit the head off of a, of a dub, dove as well at a different show. Animals are not safe around this man. <laughs> no. Dead or alive. Um, yeah. So at the time, he was believed to have a negative influence on the teens and that his genre of music glorified Satan. He tempted the comparisons to the infamous occultist Aleister Crowley with the song Mr. Crowley. Though he denied being a Satanist. In fact, Ozzy's reported to be a member of the Church of England who prays before going onto stage. Yeah. But then, then, there was a couple incidents, aside from the whole biting off birds, he- bird and bat heads. Um, so, on New Year's Eve in 1983, in Halifax, Nova Scotia, a guy by the name of James Jollimore killed a woman and her two sons after listening to Bark of the Moon. Um... Yeah, not great. And one of his friends said, uh, after the whole thing, quote, I'm trying not to say this in a Nova Scotia accent, so... Oh my god, don't say... (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, but he said, quote, Jimmy said that every time he listened to the song, he felt strange inside. He said when he heard it on New Year's Eve, he went out and stabbed someone. (sighs) Sorry, it becomes funny <laughs> in a maritime accent. But no, it was awful. Two, a woman and two kids died. Anyway, in 1984, James McCollum, a teenager in California, died by suicide while listening to Suicide Solution from Ozzy's debut solo album. The, songs, the song deals with the misuse of drugs and alcohol, with which uh, Ozzy claimed that it was about the death of Bond of I wrote Bon Scott, is that right? Yeah, that's Bon Scott. Okay, Bon Scott of ACDC. Um, but the co-writer of the song, Bob Daisley, said in 2002 that he had Ozzy in mind when he was writing the song. Because, again, Ozzy's had all of these problems. Serious drug and alcohol yeah, problems like, all of It is life. surprising he is still alive. And Keith Richards, of drug man. problems. Yeah. Those two should be fucking dead. I'm pretty sure they're pickled on the inside by this point. (laughs) They're well preserved. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But yeah. Daisley probably thought that Ozzy was going to kill over at any moment. Um, But then in 1985, Ozzy was sued by McCollum's parents who cited lines like, uh, quote, where to hide? Suicide is the only way out. Don't you know what it's really about? Uh, that decided that is convincing their son to end his life. The family lawyer even suggested that Ozzy should have been criminally charged for encouraging young people to complete suicide. The court ruled in Ozzy's favor, citing no connection between the song and McCollum's death. Uh, but this happened again in 1991 when the parents of Michael Weller sued for $9 million, but again, the courts found no connection between Weller's suicide and Ozzy's music, because the thing about suicide is that it's a very complex situation. And, yeah, people are just going to latch on to something when something that tragic happens. And it just so happens, Ozzy's a perfect guy to blame. Anyway... Gotta find a scapegoat. And speaking of scapegoats... Judas Priest. 
Uh, Another big in- time heavy metal band founded in Birmingham, West Midlands, uh, England. A lot of bands out of Birmingham. A lot of bands. Like, Northern England was churning out bands like it was funny. And they yeah. have been active since 1969. Yeah. Um, they rose to commercial prominence through their album British Steel. And aside from obviously getting parents angry because of the name, there was also their aesthetics. Because um, Judas Priest pioneered the heavy metal fashion look. Um. A lot of credit goes to Rob Helford, the lead singer, who was inspired by contemporary punk fashions and the queer leather subculture, because as a gay man, of course he look like that. Yeah, they do look like they belong at the, what what was that club called? The, the Blue Oyster called the club or something like that? <laughs> Rob Helford looked like a leather daddy. Yeah. Da-da-da-da. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> So, Rye, if you're Station Watts' song for Pride Month, uh, Raw Deal is about Fire Island, which was a big gay mecca back in the 70s. Noted. Yeah. Um, yeah, and nobody noticed. I love it when stuff like that happens. Anyway, what the band also got into trouble for was subliminal messaging. So subliminal stimuli is a real thing. Uh, there are sensory stimuli below a person's threshold of conscious perception. In a 2012 review of fMRI scan, scan studies showed that subliminal stim- stimuli activate um, specific regions of the brain despite uh, participants and awareness. So visual stimuli may be quickly flashed before an individual can process them or flashed and then masked to interrupt processing. Audio stimuli can be played below audio volumes or masked by other stimuli, but this is kind of a long process for there to be any real effects. Um, and it's kind of more like priming. Like TV commercials do use some levels of subliminal messaging to get you to buy their products or like associating certain colors with certain things um audio stimuli i'm not entirely sure how it works but it isn't the back back masking that the satanic panic people would have you believe where it's that that is a massive case of pareidolia like what they would do is they would play the records backwards having already said uh, listen for a certain message and then your brain is going to be searching for that message while you are listening to the record backwards. And our stupid monkey brains are amazing at finding patterns even when they're not there. <laughs> like, there's a reason why we can see stuff like um, images in clouds, uh, why houses can look like faces, why uh, depending on your culture, there's either a man in the moon or a rabbit in the moon. So, yeah. Um, in 1990, Judas Priest was subject to a civil action in the United States, which alleged that the band was responsible for an incident in Sparks, Nevada in 1985, in which 20-year-old James Vance and 18-year-old Raymond Belknap um, shot themselves. On the evening of December 23, 1985, Vance and Belknap uh, went to a church playground with a 12-gauge shotgun 
with the purpose of completing suicide. They had consumed alcohol or marijuana earlier that evening. The lawsuit alleges that the pair had been listening to Judas Priest's, to Judas Priest's 1978 album Stained Class that night. Lawyers representing Beltnap and Vance the Beltnap and Vance families allege that subliminal met that a subliminal message urged them to quote unquote do it. Um, that had been embedded in the song "Better by You, Better Than Me," a cover of a 1969 Spooky Tooth song. Judas Priest had recorded the cover at the urging of their record company after the rest of that album had been completed. Um, <laughs> record companies, man. Um, so the plaintiffs alleged that the subliminal command was the trigger which led to the pair deciding to shoot themselves. Vance's parents claimed that their their son had been troubled for a long time prior to the suicide pact, but had re recently, quote-unquote, changed for the better and had re-embraced his family's Christian faith before the garbage music of Judas Priest had, all had again led him astray. The trial lasted from July 16th to August 24th, 1990, when the lawsuit was dismissed by the judge, who ruled that the so-called subliminal message was a coincidental, quote, coincidental convergence of a guitar chord with an exhalation pattern. You're going to hear about these cases a lot in what we're talking about, and you're going to hear the same thing over and over Shit gets thrown out because your accusation is fucking nothing. <laughs> yeah. You have no science backing you up. There is no evidence of anything. There is no malicious intent going on. God, the fucking judges had the easiest payday when they heard shit <laughs> like this was coming their way. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Marilyn Manson. Fuck this guy. Um, fuck, he was born Brian Hugh Warner on January 5th, 1969 in Canton, Ohio. He's been active since 1989, and hopefully he'll his uh, career will be destroyed soon, because, again, fuck this guy. Fuck him. Yeah, so he's, he's you know, famous as an industrial alt metal, hard rock, goth rock, and shock rock singer. Um, he sucks... But not for satanic panic reasons. Um, for various reasons, other reasons, though. Yeah, just listen to Angel, uh, Evan Rachel Wood, Esme, Esme Bianco, Ashley Morgan Smith line, Ashley Walt Walters, Zita Montes. She's been pretty quiet about her relationship with him, but like, who knows? Who knows what actually happened? It didn't seem good anyway because she left him with nothing. So, yeah. 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 Uh, anyway, we'll try to keep Manson's section short. Um, he got in trouble over Columbine, which there will be an episode about in the future because of all the Christian fundamentalist fuckery that went on in the aftermath. Um, this is pretty much all about aesthetics. Manson has some extremely dark songs, but Harrison Klebold did not listen to his music. It, 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 they never mentioned him. They never listened to him. Like, they were into KMFDM, whose lead singer Sasha Konetsko said um, after the whole thing, quote, KMFDM was against war, oppression, fascism, and violence against others, and that, quote, 
none of us condone any Nazi beliefs whatsoever, which you have to- They were German banned. <laughs> you kind of have to be on top of that shit a little bit more in Germany. Yeah, there's, uh, <laughs> there, there, there's a few reasons why that- and yeah. also, yeah. like, there's so many bands in, like, the, especially the Scandinavian metal scene that have to go out there and be like, we don't fucking condone this shit. There's some fuckers out here trying to push this shit. Fuck them. Yeah. A lot of having to do uh, Nazi pucks fuck off stuff. Um, so there was a Washington, Mo- Washington Post article from April 22nd, 1999 that said of the shooters, quote, they hated jocks, admired Nazis, and scorned normalcy. They fancied themselves devotees of the gothic subculture, even though they were thrilled to the violence denounced by much of that fantasy world. They were white supremacists, but loved music by anti-racist bands, unquote. Manson faced harassment from all sides. Almost immediately after the shooting, there were newspapers and tabloids with headlines like Killer worship, Killers Worship Rock Freak Manson, and devil-worshipping maniac told told kids to kill. Again, Manson is shitty for other reasons, but did not have any influence over Harrison Klebold. Manson said, quote, "Um, the media has unfairly scapegoated the music industry and so-called goth kids and has speculated with no basis in truth that artists like myself are in some way to blame. The tragedy was a product of ignorance, hatred, and an access to guns. I hope the media's irresponsible finger-pointing doesn't create more discrimination against kids who look different. Unquote. And yeah, he's fucking right about that. Heartbreaking. The worst person you know just made a great point. Yeah. Anyway, Rye, how about you talk about Slipknot? Oh yeah, I'm so fucking down to talk about Slipknot. They are new metal, alt metal, groove metal, heavy metal band found in the shit old the United States, Des Moines, Iowa. <laughs> Their members are zero, Sid Wilson. One, Joey Jordan, rest in peace. Two, Paul Gray, rest in peace. Three, Chris Fenn. Four, Jim Root. Five, Craig 133, <laughs> 133 Jones. I don't know how you get a nickname, but it's just numbers. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, <coughs> six, Sean Clown Karen. Uh, seven, Mick Thompson. Eight, Corey Taylor. And that was their main lineup from between 1997 and 2010. They've been active ever since 1995. So Slipknot. It's really easy to see how they got kind of caught up in just the moralist fears and everything. With mm-hmm. the whole masks and dark imagery and everything, the lyrical content of their songs have been linked to violence, such as in 20, uh, 2003, 2003, when two young uh, killers uh, blamed the lyrics of Disaster Piece for their, cl- for their crimes. Uh, in 2006, the lyrics of Surfacing were found at the site of grave robbery. And then 2008, uh, there was a slashing incident in South a- at a South African school in which Slipknot was linked to. Corey Taylor, who's also the lead singer of Stone Sour, oh. uh, and also the lead vocalist, uh, stated in response that, Obviously, I am disturbed by the fact that people were hurt and somebody died. As far as my responsibility... As far as my responsibility for that goes, it stops there. 
because I know our message is actually very positive. There are no, there there are always going to be mental disorders and people who cause violence for no other reason than the fact that they are fucked up and lost. Yeah. Again, there's only so much influence an artist has over their audience. So, uh, ACDC, this is going to be one of our first bands targeted by the PMRC. Yep, there's a, we, we got a lot to cover with them, at least. Oh, yeah. The, the whole PMRC and Tipper Gore's crusade to bring back those good Christian values to pop music. Oh, uh, yes. How dare Prince be Prince? Ugh. Anyway, uh, ACDC, they were founded in Sydney, <coughs> in Sydney Australia. Uh, they are like hard rock, blues rock, rock and roll, heavy metal. I call them dad rock, honestly. Yeah, they, they qualify for that. And also, yeah. like, it, it's not stated in here. They're, they, they, they take a lot of pop influence. Yeah. And that's why albums like Back in Black were so big. Mm-hmm. They were massive crossover hits. Uh, they've been act- active since 1973. Their current... Uh, their lineup in so. general, uh, just yeah. kind of over the years, has been Bon Scott, Brian Johnson, Angus Young, Malcolm Young, Cliff Williams, and Phil Rudd, with Johnson replacing Bon Scott after his death in 1980. Yeah. Um... So yeah, I said ACDC, it's the definition of dad rock. You can listen to it with your dad while drinking shitty, shitty beer. Good. It is Miller time when ACDC is playing. <laughs> yeah. Um, the worst good faith criticism against them is that they've never been very musically risky and their lyrics can be misogynistic. A little bit. But yeah. But they get caught up in some controversy, especially in the 80s. Uh, first, they found themselves among the PMRC's Filthy 15 for the song, Let Me Put My Love Into You. The lyrics are a little bit rapey, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is one of those, mm, yeah, I can see why. Um... But what got them into a lot of trouble was uh, the serial killer Richard Ramirez, also called the Night Stalker, um, who we'll probably cover in a future series about serial killers and how they influence the satanic panic, because this guy was a satanic panic serial killer, in a certain, or at least influenced the ideas floating around. Um, also, please don't romanticize Richard Ramirez, aside from being a disgusting serial killer. He was also noted for having very bad halitosis. Ew. <laughs> yeah. So when Ramirez was arrested, the press dubbed him the Night Stalker, and he told the police that Night Prowler from Highway to Hell drove him to murder. Um, the police also claimed that Ramirez was wearing an ACDC shirt and left an ACDC hat at one of the crime scenes. Accusations that ACDC were devil worshippers were made soon after with the lyrics of Nightcrawler were analyzed and some newspapers attempted to link Ramirez's Satan, quote-unquote Satanism with ACDC's name, arriving to the conclusion that ACDC actually stood for Antichrist, Devil's Child, or Devil's Children. 
No, guys, come on. <laughs> they are it... a bunch of lads from fucking Australia. They former they Scots. Yeah, they, they took it from the different types of electrical current. <laughs> <laughs> it's it barely even qualifies as being nerdy. So it's anyway, just, in response, it's being practical. Yeah. <laughs> so in response, Angus Young told People Magazine, "Quote: People who want to want to strangle other people's rights are possessed by one of the world's worst devils around, the Satan in their souls, which is called intolerance." And Got him. Yeah. So anyway, Motley Crue. Ooh, these guys—they—they they, they should have died. <laughs> They should have died, and also, you know what? The PMRC, they had their targets locked on these guys, maybe for good reason. <laughs> they were a heavy metal, glam metal, hard rock band that came out of Los Angeles, which fucking ruled the Sunset Strip for a while there. Mm-hmm. The metal scene in L.A. was crazy at one point. I remember I that they used to like kick Metallica's ass all the time. Oh, yeah, yeah, they, they beat the shit out of them. Uh, <laughs> and remembers Vince Neil, Tommy Lee, Nick, Nikki Six, and Mick Mars. They've been active 1981 to 2015 and then reformed in 2018, which they're still going now, even though uh, Mick Mars just recently retired from touring. So they brought in uh, John Five from. Rob Zombie. So now they have oh. Nikki Six and John Five, which we just need. <laughs> we just need Tommy Lee and Vince Neil to find some fucking numbers and just go yeah. down this road. Yeah. So, um, okay, this time they kind of got hit more for the sex, drugs, and rock and roll side of the PMRC's moral crusade than a lot of other stuff. Um, Again, how are they still alive? Because I'm pre- didn't Nikki Six die like twice? Something like that. And Vince Neil was a fucking mess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they did everything. They did everyone, including a person on this list. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, they did. And they got to make music about it. Bastard being the song that got them on Typical's list for the lyrics about for lyrics about killing people. Side note, how come Skid Row's 18th Life didn't make it onto the list? Sebastian Bach is literally singing about shooting a man and going to prison for it. Like, that fucking sounds like a Johnny Cash song right there. Like, literally, (laughs) literally. I guess they didn't go on the list because they went to jail for it. (laughs) The police system worked. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, the crew... Remained pretty much unaffected by the list and saw a boom in sales when the parental advisory sticker was put on their album. Because here's a theme to these episodes Forbidden Fruit. Kid. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck. I'm dying a little. Yeah. <laughs> um. So, number eight, Venom. They're they're a thrash metal, speed metal, black metal, extreme metal, 
heavy metal. These guys are just metal as fuck. They're just metal as fuck. Their members uh, for their classic lineup between 1980 and 1986 are Conrad Kronos Lant, Anthony Abaddon Bray, and Jeffrey Mantis Dunn. They were founded in Newcastle upon Tyne, in Tyne and Ware, England. They've been active 1978 to 1992, 1995 to 19 uh, to 2002, and then 2005 to now. So again, they were coming at about around the same time as like Raven, Tank, Saxon, Hell, Demon, Fist, and Blitzkrieg. Damn. It's, I I love the simple names that really invoke yep. the heavy metal imagery. Mm-hmm. Um, so Venom in particular leaned into the satanic imagery. Their first album was called Welcome to Hell, which featured a ghost head in the middle of a pentagram. So it's no surprise that they were criticized for, for the satanic nature of their song, of their music. Blah, blah, blah. In a quote from bassist and lead singer Conrad Kronos Lant, who is also the only remaining original member, uh, he stated, quote, I've always been interested in Satanism, but we're entertainers, and we use subjects like Satanism and Paganism to entertain people, like horror movies do. Listening to Ven- <clears throat> listening to Ven- to a Venom album is the same thing as watching an Evil Dead movie. I don't go around murdering virgins in my spare time. I'm. <laughs> it's frustrating when people can't make that distinction. I mean, David Bowie's not actually from Mars, is he? But... <laughs> Uh, but we're always being misquoted in the press venom admits to dancing around a campfire with virgins nonsense unquote so their major song possessed landed them on the pmrc's filthy 15 uh i call it a playlist because it had occult lyrics and yeah it's got occult fucking lyrics they fucking own it but like what about <laughs> Honestly, my man knows what he's about. He's like, I'm, I'm, I'm no different than Sam Raimi. I'm, I'm making yeah. music to entertain the masses. What do you want yeah. from me? <laughs> now, a surprise entry on the PMRC's 50, filthy fifteen list was Merciful Fate, a heavy metal, black metal, and gothic them? metal band from Copenhagen. How the fuck did they find? Like, you have to dig they- the, at that time to. Dig for this one. Someone went through their kids' record out record collection. They had to have gone through their kids' record collection. In which case, their kid has good taste. Um. Anyway, their members were uh, King Diamond, Hank Sherman, Michael Denner, Timmy Hansen, and Kim Russ. That's their classic lineup for the el- for uh, Melissa and Don't Breathe, Don't Break the Oath. They've been active on and off between. 1981 and now um it's every now and then yeah i'm not listing all those dates um so they're they also used a lot of satanic and occult imagery but like in denmark at the time that was just kind of the thing uh hell they even they even used actual human bones as props on stage and blew up a dummy dressed up as a nun during concerts. That fucking um, rules. <laughs> yeah. 
They were part of the first wave of heavy metal, uh, along with Venom, Bathory, and Hellhammer, which, again, great names. Great fucking names, guys. Yeah. Uh, they were a big influence in Slayer, and yeah, Into the Coven off of Melissa is unabashedly occultic. Um, as said earlier, they were fucking surprised that the PMRC knew about them at all. <laughs> Um, and Into the Coven wasn't even a single. Uh, King Diamond uh, told Rolling Stone, quote, We thought they were really bored to have, to to have time for this. <laughs> How they saw the songs said more about them than it did about us. They had some really perverted minds. It was funny, ridiculous, and surprising. Thanks for the promotion, Tipper! <laughs> <laughs> and, um... King Diamond also said in that interview, quote, the parental advisory sticker never served as a warning, but more as a stamp of approval that kids ended up looking for. <laughs> this guy's great. They, I know. They, they fucking knew. You stupid fuck. We got you. So, switching from metal to the Queen of Pop herself, Madonna. <laughs> um, Madonna Louise Ciccone, born August 16th, 1958 in Bay, Bay, Bay City, Michigan, to a very Italian and French-Canadian Catholic family. Um, she's, well, the Queen of Pop, and she's been active since 1979. Um, but, okay... This is one of the dumbest choices that the PMRC put on their fil Filthy 15 list. Because it was Dress You Up. They picked which, Dress You Up. <laughs> which, like, a critic said that, that like, the lyrics are about as a... Were, like, written by two grandmas from New Jersey. <laughs> like, it's like, you had options. You actually yeah, had like options, a virgin. guys. You had fucking Like a Virgin. <laughs> Like, oh, oh my god. And and yeah, like a prayer is about job. giving sloppy toppy. Like, <laughs> the fuck, guys? It's it's right there. Like, like a prayer wasn't going to come out until 89. And the Filthy 15 list was in 85. Oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, yeah, like, this is such a cape. Dress You Up is a K-pop song. It's that inoffensive. Um, Madonna told Spin that year um quote i couldn't be successful without being a sex symbol i'm sexy how can i avoid it that's the essence of me i would have to have a bag over my head and over my body but then my voice would come across and it's sexy <laughs> now jumping ahead to 1980 to 1989 when like a prayer comes out and it got a lot of people's attention because well it's got religious stuff. It's also about possibly giving a blowjob to a saint. <laughs> um, that's at least what our friend Tanner thinks. I mean, it's it's, it's pretty obvious. It's probably it's yeah, about giving. With lyrics like "I'm down on my knees, I want to take you there." <laughs> so, the song, according to Madonna, is about a young woman falling in love with God. And you know what? St. Teresa of Avila described her mystical encounters in fairly sexual terms. And, I mean, just check out the statue of 
like Bernini statue of the ecstasy of St. Teresa. She is having an orgasm, okay? <laughs> it is St. Teresa in full nun outfit, lying back while an angel has an arrow pointed right to her heart. And oh god, they look like they're doing it. <laughs> it is amazing. Um, so the music video is what caught a lot of people's attention because it features a KKK Bernini cross and madonna is kissing the black saints as well as experiencing stigmata and the vatican condemned the video and many religious and parental groups protested its broadcasting and pepsi's use of like a prayer for commercials uh the boycott was so bad that pepsi <coughs> had to drop its license with madonna though she still kept her five million dollar fee let it be known Didn't pay. madonna is a very savvy businesswoman <laughs> um now the thing about like a prayer and why i wound up nearly writing an essay about like a prayer is that it came at a very interesting point in her life um and she considers it one of her most important songs the like a prayer song and album are, are generally considered like the marker for transition into a mature uh, artist um she wrote the song after experiencing back-to-back -back failures with shanghai surprise and who's that girl uh, she had started a Broadway production that had gotten her bad reviews. Her marriage to Sean Penn was crumbling, and they had filed divor for divorce in January 1989. And also that year, Madonna turned 30, which was the same age that her own mother died. Mm. <laughs> That's that is a rough 30. Um. So in March of 1989, she told Rolling Stone. Once you're Catholic, you're always Catholic. In terms of of your feelings of guilt and remorse, whether you sinned or not, sometimes I'm racked with guilt when I need to be, and <clears throat> when I need to be, and that to me is left over from my Catholic upbringing. Because in Catholicism, in Catholicism, you're born a sinner and you're a sinner all your life. No matter how you try to get away from it, the sin is within you all the time. Damn, what the baby do? You just got here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, she's feeling all of this. She writes like a prayer. It turns into a music video. It goes number one. It did gangbusters. It was on the Hot 100 for three weeks. For four weeks in Australia, it was the number one hit. It was the number one hit in Italy for nine consecutive weeks because the Italians know what's up. They fucking love themselves a Madonna. Yeah. Um, like a Prayer eventually became a... went quadruple platinum. That's how good it did. Um, freaking academic papers have been written about the song. The French academic and literary cri critic Georges-Claude Guibert uh, wrote, quote, Madonna achieves the gold card for attaining her own divinity. Whenever someone calls her name, it alludes to the song. Unquote. Um, Andrew M. Greeley, the late Catholic theologian and professor of sociology at the universities of Arizona and Chicago, compared the song to the biblical Song of Songs. Um, while focusing on the music video, Greeley noted the noted that the that in fact sexual passion may be relevatory and complimented Madonna on glorifying ideologies of female subjectivity and womanhood in the song. So ultimately, Madonna said, quote, Like Her Prayer is a very important song to me. I felt the impact that it was going to make. The song means a lot more to me than Like a Virgin. I wrote it 
and it's from my heart. It's a very spiritual song. I think I was much more spiritually in touch with the power of words and music by that time. Uh, by the time I started recording the song and the album. And honestly, like a prayer, like we joke about what it's about, but like it's a good song. Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, there is. Oh, who's the wrestler that come? Who walks out to that? Grado, that's it. Yeah, yeah, I found it. Awesome. Yeah, and I mean, if you're gonna walk out to a Madonna song, I might as well be like a prayer. Um, so yeah, how about we talk about Prince? Yeah, my man, Prince. Prince Rogers Nelson, at one point known as the artist formerly known as Prince, um, aka Taf Cap. Cap. Taf Cap. Cap. Okay. Yeah. He was born June seventh, nineteen fifty eight, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. He died on April twenty first, twenty sixteen, in Chehassan, Minnesota. I'm so. I wish Dad and I had spent more time in Minneapolis because uh, his estate is now a, is a museum. Oh, that's cool. That you can visit, yeah. Yeah, I wish we could have gone there. Um, He was a funk, rock, pop, soul, and R&B artist. He was active between 1975 and 2016. And he is the reason <laughs> for the PMRC. <laughs> Caused it all. Ryan, how about you take it away? So yeah, Tipper Gore's daughter was coming home with a copy of Purple Rain. And that is the reason for the PMRC's existence. So in 1985, Gore witnessed her then 11-year-old daughter playing an album and was shocked, shocked, to hear the explicit lyrics of Darling Nikki. Now for context, in the Purple Rain film, Darling Nikki is directed towards... Uh, Apollonia. Ap 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 <coughs> oh my god. Apollonia Cotero. All right, thank you, Lindsay. Uh, her character uh, by the kid uh, who is played by Prince, uh, when he found out Apollonia was uh, working with his rival. Uh, the song features explicit references to female masturbation, which, in the context of the movie, is meant to humiliate Apollonia. Uh, out of context, it is a raunchy song about jerking off <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh it also features some lyrics recorded backwards when played f and when you play them forward it it's uh hello how are you fine fine because i know the <laughs> i know that the lord is coming soon coming coming soon <laughs> fucking love prince prince fucking rules <laughs> oh prince <laughs> Ryan's just taking a break. I just gotta use the washroom real quick. Okay. Doop 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 doop. Doop doop doop. 
Tell them about Frank Zappa. All right, I'll tell them about Frank Zappa. Um, <laughs> Frank Zappa was born Frank Vincent Zappa on December 21st, 1940 in Baltimore, Maryland, and he died December 4th, 1993 in Los Angeles, California. Um, he basically did every genre, like just all of them. Um, he was active between 1961 and in 1993. So he's basically done everything that you could potentially do within the music industry he dabbled in every genre that you can think of and played too many instruments to list uh so after the filthy 15 was announced frank zappa went to congress on uh september 19th 1985 and testified to the united states senate Com commerce Technol technology and transportation committee about his objections to the pmrc you see the pmrc consisted of many wise politicians such as the aforementioned co-founder Tipper Gore, who is the wife of then-Senator Al Gore, and included the wives of five members of the committee, and was founded to address the issues of song lyrics with sexual and satanic co content. During Zappa's testimony, he stated that there was a clear conflict of interest between the PMRC due to the relations of its founders to the politicians who were then trying to pass what he referred to as the quote, blank tape ta tax. Uh, Katie Stroud, a spokeswoman for the PMRC, announced that Senator Gore, um, who co-founded the committee and would later be the vice president to Bill Clinton, was a co-sponsor of that legislation. Zappa suggested that record labels were trying to get the bill passed quickly through committees, one of which was chaired by Senator Strom Thurmond, who was also affiliated with the PMRC. Strom Thurmond was also the We'll probably talk about him in the future, too, because he has a history. Um, uh, Zappa further pointed out that this committee had been used as a distraction from the bill, the, from that bill being passed, uh, which would lead to lead only to benefit a select few in the music industry. Pretty much right about that one. Um, Zappa saw their activities as on a path towards censorship and called their proposal for voluntary label labeling of records with explicit content content uh, extortion uh, of the music industry. In his prepared statement, he said, quote, The PMRC proposal is an ill-conceived piece of nonsense which fails to deliver any real benefit to children, infringes the civil the civil rights of people who are not children, and promises to keep the courts busy for years dealing with the with the interpretation and enforcement problems inherent in in the proposal's design. It is my understanding that in law, First Amendment issues are decided uh, are decided with a preference for the least restrictive alternative. In this context, the PMRC's demands are the equivalent to treating dandruff by decapitation. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Fucking A, Frank. Um... The establishment of a rating system, voluntary or otherwise, opens the door to an endless parade of moral quality control programs based on things certain Christians do not like. What if the next bunch of Washington wives demand that's a large yellow J on all materials written and performed by Jews in order to save help helpless children from exposure to concealed Zionist doctrine? Oh, he's kind of going through the jugular right there anyway uh zappa sent expert excerpts 
Zappa set experts of the PMRC hearings to uh, sing clavier music in his composition Porn Wars on the 1985 album Frank Zappa Meets the Mother Mothers of Prevention. And the full recording was released in 2010 as Congress shall not shall make no laws. Uh, Zappa is heard interacting with Senators Fritz Hollings, Slade Gordon, and Al Gore. So the first mistake that these guys made was getting one of the most well-spoken people in the music industry. The second mistake they (laughs) one of the most yeah, and the second biggest mistake was then getting John Denver because they thought he would be (laughs) on their side. John fucking Denver. Born Henry John Duchendorf Jr. Did I say that right? Yeah. Duchendorf. Good name. On December 31st, 1943 in Roswell, New Mexico. He passed away, unfortunately, in on October 12th, 1997, Monterey Bay near Pacific Grove, California. His genres kind of a little bit all over the place. Uh, folk, folk rock, pop, country, soft rock, and western music. And he was active from 62 to his death in 1997. We all know him for... Uh, country Roads. For Take Me Home. Country Roads, Take Me Home. I'm not going to sing because I have a horrible voice. Um, That's a lie. Yes. Anyway, John Denver... Um, Everybody thought that he was going to be on the PMRC side. Turns out he had a bone to pick with censorship. <laughs> the so, nicest guy you could ever meet is mad at you. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those, why'd you pick a fight with him? He's the nice uncle. He's a nice guy, you know, he's, he's got a family. <laughs> It's a good man. <laughs> so, John Denver referred to the proposed labels as censorship and stated that he was, quote, strongly opposed to censorship of any kind in our society or anywhere else in the world, unquote, and that in his experience, censors often misinterpret music, which was the case with the song Rocky Mountain High, which is a beautiful song. Beautiful song. Oh my god, it is so good. Um, His song had been briefly censored for quote promotion of drug abuse for the use of the term high denver had to explain that high was merely an innocent description of the feeling he had seen he had seeing the rocky mountains <laughs> you ever look at some mountains and go like wow damn yeah that's Standing what on top of the mountains and god that is a feeling it is a feeling Obviously, these fucking mm. city slickers know nothing. Absolutely nothing. Um, of the censors, he said, quote, there was, this was obviously done by people who had never seen or been to the Rocky Mountains and also had never experienced the elation, celebration of life or joy in living that one that that one feels when he observes something as wondrous as the Persian meteor shower on a moonless, cloudless night, when there are so many stars that you have a shadow from the starlight, and you're out camping with your friends, your best friends, and you in, and introducing them to one of nature's most spectacular life shows for the first time. 
which perfectly <laughs> he, it's beautiful yeah <laughs> beautiful he was a beautiful man with a beautiful soul oh <laughs> uh, fuck he uh. further compared the pm PMRC's proposals to Nazi book burning and expressed uh, his belief that censorship is ultimately counterproductive. He said, quote, that which is denied becomes that which is most desired, and that which is hidden becomes that which is most interesting. Consequently, a great deal of time and energy is spent trying to get at what is being kept from you. Unquote. Uh, when, yeah, it's just there. Fucking mic drop. Incredible. So, yeah. that was the second mistake that the PMRC made, was getting the nicest guy mad at you <laughs> in the nicest yeah. way possible. The third mistake they made was getting another incredibly well-spoken metalhead and having him speak carry the flag annihilate these people and we're talking about d snyder of twisted sister twisted sister known for heavy metal glam metal hard rock they your prototypical 1980s hair metal band Mm -hmm. members include jj french eddie fingers ojeda D. Snyder, Mark the Animal Mendoza, and A.J. Perro. They were founded in Hohokus, New Jersey. They were active between 1972 and 1988 and 1997 to 2016. Well, you wrote this, Rye. Yeah. So they were another group that was lumped into the PMRC's crusade and and, uh, Twisted Sister was a band that was really the true definition of a glam rock band. They had the long hair, the makeup. They looked like they were inspiring teens to go to drag shows more than trying to inspire them to cause and seek out violence. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. But try telling that to Tipper Gore and the PMRC, though, because their song, We're Not Gonna Take It, was categorized as a violent song with frightening lyrics like, We'll fight the powers that be, and we're not gonna take it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Tipper. So, for some reason, uh, Twisted Sister's frontman, Dee Snyder, was made public enemy number one by the PMRC and Mrs. Gore, uh, despite the fact that uh, Snyder was also a known Christian, a father, a devoted husband who has been with his wife, Suzette, for 41 years now, congratulations, while Al and Tipper have been separated since 2010. <laughs> and... Also, D. Snyder follows the Ryan Mitchell principles of life, trademarked. Uh, <laughs> he does not drink, he does not smoke, and he does not do drugs. And is also one of what metal's most well-spoken people. So Snyder was asked to appear before Congress uh, with John Denver and Frank Zappa for their hearing with the PMRC, which Snyder took that as, oh, you want me to carry the flag into battle? Hell yeah, let's do it. So when D. Snyder appeared, 
He he looked like he just rolled off the tour bus. He had his yeah. the rattiest clothes on. His hair was a mess. He's wearing his shades. <laughs> and he pulls out this crumpled piece of paper. He looked like he looked terrible. <laughs> You watch the video, he pulled it out of his back pocket. Like. <laughs> Not even the front pocket, he kept that shit in the back pocket. And this was all a part of his plan. This was by design. He worked the fucking crowd into thinking that he was yeah. just another dumb junkie rocker who couldn't string two sentences together. And he had the whole hearing in the palm of his hand. He ripped apart the hearing with uh, such class and style that everyone was just slack-jawed. And Snyder called out Tipper Gore's comments on the song Under the Knife, which Gore claimed was about sadomasochism and bondage with underlying sexual themes. Snyder, he's the one who wrote the song, and he stated it was about his bandmate Eddie Ojeda's throat surgery and people's fears of going into surgery in general. It's a scary thing. And he almost made Al Gore (laughs) blow a gasket and hop over and start a fight with him when he claimed that Tipper had a dirty mind. (laughs) Maybe that's why he and Tipper divorced. (laughs) Good satisfier. Yeah, yeah. Barren like a desert. The whole, the whole hearing itself, you can watch it on YouTube, and I highly recommend it. It is 30 minutes of watching people get what's coming to them. We salute you, D. Snyder. Uh, good, good, D. D. Snyder. So, anyway, hopping over the pond again. Um, also on the Filthy 15 list was one Sheena Easton. So she was born Sheena... Sheena Shirley Easton on April 27, 1959 in Bells Hill, Lanarkshire, Scotland. Um, she's mostly a pop and R&B singer. She's been active since 1978. And by this time, if if anybody really knew her for anything, it was for, for Your Eyes Only. Yep, that's about it. She, yeah, she had a Bond song. Which, you know what? That's a pretty good thing to have on your... On, on your, the resume. Uh, yeah, yeah was, uh, I was... Uh, my song was used for Moonraker. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, for your eyes only, um, was oh, I think it was a uh, Roger Moore. I wanna say it was Roger Moore. I th- I wanna say so. Yep, that's a Moore one. Yeah. Yeah, so it's considered something of like a gritty back to basics Bond movie after the pretty kind of goofy uh moonraker um so yeah that that was her big thing um the scottish singer was on the upswing at the time and would go on to be the first and currently only artist to have a top five hit on each of billboard's primary singles chart uh morning train nine to five for pop and adult contemporary We've Got Tonight with Kenny Rogers on the country and adult contemporary, and Sugar Walls on the R&B and dance uh, charts. And Sugar Walls was the one that got her in trouble. So, <laughs> Sugar Walls was written by Prince under the pseudonym Alexander Nevermind, and this is a Prince song. Like, everything about it has, like, Prince's staples on it. Like, it's hard to describe what a Prince song is. You've got to listen to 
prince. But a prince know. on sounds like the symbol. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's unabashedly sexual, and you know, making sugar walls into a euphemism for a vagina is very easy. Um, and it fits. At the time, Easton was going for a bit more of a sexier look. So, yeah, she, of course, sung Sugar Walls. In any case, it landed her a top 10 hit, and the PMRC thought it was suggestive enough to warrant a place on their Filthy 15 list. You know what? I Here's the thing about all the female artists who wound up on the Filthy 15 list. It was all for sexy songs. Yep. Or supposedly they, sexy songs. They can't I, help I, but I be hot. Why. Yeah. I wonder why. I wonder why. Jealousy. Anyway. <laughs> or, you know, just not liking women being in charge of their own sexuality. Unless it's got a whole feminist opinion on that. Yeah, that, that uh, too. I would just like the yeah. idea of, like, Tipper Gore being like, It should have been me! <laughs> <laughs> um, and, yeah... I watched the music video for Sugar Walls. It's just Sheena Easton kind of standing in front of her band being like, doing like bedroom eyes to the camera. That's about it. Like she barely moves her shoulders. <laughs> but it caught the attention of Tepper Gore and the televangelist Jimmy Swagger. Um, in 85, Easton said, quote, you think of rock and roll and it's, just from the heart and you feel sexy and raw and raunchy and be you male or female doing any particular performance or song song then that's what you want to do we're not embarrassed to be sexy when we want to be men have never had to apologize for being sexy artists are just saying hey line up get off our case this is what art's all about it's being free and if you don't like it then tune into something else go watch the news and watch violence if you don't like sexuality unquote later uh easton told billboard quote if parents felt that sugar walls was inappropriate for the kids to listen to they were well within their rights to make that clear adults on the other hand are free to choose what they want it did not offend me that some people didn't want to want their kids to listen to Sugar Walls at all. I believe the track found its intended audience. Unquote. <laughs> it, it's just the entire PMRC is a bunch of adults trying to tell other adults what to listen to. Like, we stay out of our business. Yeah. So Wasp. Wasp. In trouble for being a bit too sexy. Yep. A little bit. <laughs> I have my own opinions on some of their lyrics. Uh, anyway, they were a heavy metal, glam metal, and shock rock band. Uh, their members include Blackie Lawless, Randy Piper, uh, Chris Holmes, and Tony Richards for their um, animal Fuck Like a Beast and uh, self-titled LP. And yeah, that is the song that they got in trouble for. <laughs> you know what? Just by the name... I don't even blame him. <laughs> it's like, huh, there might be something sexual about this song. <laughs> yeah. They've been active from 1982 to present. And, um, yeah, they were actually kind of stung hard by the PMRC. Yeah, tough. Um, yeah, they got it tough. Um, so in 1982, they released their debut single, Animal Fuck Like a Beast. And 
everything you need to know about the song is right there in the title. The band quickly gained a reputation for being raunchy and at times shocking, having shocking live shows. Blackie Lawless, the lead singer and rhythm guitarist, was known to tie semi-naked models uh, to torture racks and also hurled raw meat into the audience. <laughs> Why are you doing that? <laughs> Why you do that? Oh, oh my god, yeah, we'll fucking get to them. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, they make Wasp look so fucking tame. Um, so, when they signed on with Capitol Records, Animal was omitted from the album for risk of getting it banned from major retail chains. For obvious fucking reasons. <laughs> um, the record company had subsequent plans to release the single only in Europe in a black plastic bag with a warning sticker about the explicit lyrics. As if the Europeans are gonna fucking care. <laughs> no, the uh, Europeans. They're crazy out there. They're also horny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um... Capital backed out at the last minute, and the single was shelved until the band was able to strike a one-off publishing deal with an independent label, uh, Music for Nations. The single was finally released in April 1984, complete with the original sleeve and art depicting a codpiece and a circular saw blade. Chainsaw, man. <laughs> you know what? No. <laughs> Um, so, of course, the PMRC targeted, targets Wasp for censorship, um, and it nearly ruined the reputation to the point that concert halls were getting bomb threats, band members were receiving death threats by the hundreds, and Lawless was shot at twice. Thankfully not hit. Oh, hard it is um, to shoot a wasp. <laughs> yeah, those fuckers don't die. Small uh, and agile. Yeah. Uh, the controversy generated uh, value publicity for the band, however, and they went on, like, after this big setback. Um, 1996 was actually a really good year for them. Um, they achieved long uh, mainstream success and embarked on a year-long tour across Europe and North America. They headlined for Slayer, Raven, and Saxon. Uh, they were featured on a couple of soundtracks and have uh, a live appearance on Top of the Pops. And they had a pretty good run for the rest of the 80s, really. Like, they kind of fizzled out in the 90s because of changing tastes. Made the best of what they could. Yeah. So going back to another singer who is connected to both Prince and Motley Crue. Remember how we alluded to that earlier? It's Vanity! So she was born Denise Katrina Matthews on January 4th, 1959 in Niagara Falls, Ontario. And died, unfortunately, on, on uh, February 15th, 2016. I'm having a strange brain fart. It is Sunday. Um, she was mainly an R&B, pop, soul, and funk singer. She was active from 1977 to 1983. And Bruce is a bit ironic. Her story is a bit ironic because of the uh, turnaround near the end of her life. Uh Denise Matthews went from being an 80s singer modeled in sex symbol to a 90s evangelist. Odd. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
So she was originally the lead singer of a girls group called Vanity Six, which had been, which had international success with their single Nasty Girl. Uh, they wore lingerie, and Vanity's image became that of an erotic and sexy Nasty Girl. Matthew said, quote, Prince created the whole Vanity Six image. It bothered me at the time. I lied and said it was the image I wanted. I did it because he told me I had to do it. If I didn't do it, I would get paid. I got into it. I wanted the old Diana Ross image. Unquote. Uh, she was originally going to play Prince's love interest in Purple Rain, but they had parted ways and the world went to Apollonia. Um, she put out her first solo album, Wild Animal, in 1984, which contained the suggestive Strap on Robbie Bobby, a tune written for her then boyfriend, Robbie Bruce. In 1985, she posed nude in Playboy. Uh, she then told the Associated Press, quote, I put the sexual image of me in my music. My music is very sexual, so you could say I'm just putting it all out there. Uh, so the Sauron eye of the PMRC came, <sighs> came onto her both because of the song and all of the people she was connected to. By 1986, Matthews was romantically linked to Adam Ant, Billy Idol, and... One time Beyonce, Motley Cruz, Nikki Six. She had a sex, drugs, rock and roll image that was pretty aggressive for a woman. But then the drugs caught up with her. She had a massive health crisis in the early 90s that led her to turn to Christianity. Uh, she even believed that she had been possessed by demons. Matthews told Rolling Stone, quote, I was young and irresponsible, a silly woman laden with sin not caring for anything except fame and fortune and self. But I have lived to see truth in Jesus Christ and found it has made me free. Which, you know what? You do you. You do you. Yep. Now, sticking with sex, drugs, and rock and roll, let's talk about Def Leppard. Def Leppard, who... Oddly enough, I talked to my boss about them a little bit when I used the term ripping for a Def Leppard concert. It's like, Def Leppard is not ripping. They are so boring. And I'm like, listen, Kurt, while I sort of agree with you, it, 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 they're it, I'm speaking to the people. They think that they're yeah. ripping. Anyways. Look, yeah. Again, dad rock. Dad rock. Big time dad rock here. But their official genres are hard rock, heavy metal, arena rock, and pop rock. Their members are Joe Elliott, Rick Savage, Savage, uh, Phil Cullen, uh, Vivian Campbell, Steve Clark, and Rick Allen. Oh, Campbell joined after Clark's death. They're found in Sheffield, South Yorkshire, England. They've been active since 1976. Yeah, so... Def Leppard emerged from the new wave of British heavy metal with a hard edge sound in the late 70s, but by the 80s they were changing to a more commercial friendly sound and scored their first hit album in the States with 1981's High and Dry. Again, as you said, they are dad rock. Um, the record contained two hits that are still classic rock airplays let it go and bring on the heartbreak and i listened to mariah carey's cover and i'm like mariah go hard <laughs> like just we know how powerful your voice is she could have taken that song to an entirely new level 
But mm-hmm. she did this whole whisper thing for the first fucking half of the song, and it's like, <laughs> no, just <laughs> go full Whitney just Houston. Belt. Just belt. Just belt it out. Yeah, it is a belting song. <laughs> anyway. Anyway, back to Def Leppard. It was the ACDC, like, drinking owed high and dry Saturday night that earned them notoriety on the fi- on the Filthy 15. By the time the PNRC had honed in on the song, though, Def Leppard were megastars, having recently seen high and dry's 1983 follow-up Pyromania certified 16 times platinum. Uh, six times. Oh, six. Why did I say 16? Uh, anyway. Um, Opium basic. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, they went six times platinum. Um, in response to the PMRC, Joe Elliott said, uh, quote, uh, party songs were part of the en- part of the entertainment. The kids like us do that. The kids like us to do that. We'd like to do that, to do it as well, but we don't write about that at all the time, and a lot of people seem to think that it's what we don't, is that we don't have opinions on anything else. And honestly, being on the Filthy 15 probably gave them more publicity. Uh, their 1987 album, Hysteria, after their drummer, Breck Allen, lost his arm in a motorcycle accident? Uh, it was actually a car accident. He was driving oh. a Corvette C4. Oh, I thought it was a motorcycle accident. Nope, that is a, that is a car accident where he just hit a stone wall and like his arm just got. Pfft. Yeah, and then they had to like create a whole new drum set for him, which was pretty cool. Yeah, he, the, the dude, still was able to carry a beat with just one arm. That yeah. is how talented Rick Allen is. Yeah, um, so it went certified platinum, and. After guitarist Steve Clark died of an alcohol and drug overdose in 1981, their 1982 offering Adrenalize even withstood the grunge, grunge's displacement of metal on the radio, selling more than 3 million copies. They still tour, and back in March, they released their 12th album, Diamond Star Halos. <laughs> so yeah, they're doing just fine. They did just fine. Them in Guns N' Roses... Yeah. Did just fine when there was a big changeover in the 90s. Yeah. In 2012, Phil Collin, the band's guitarist, said, quote, D. Snyder basically stood up for all for our rights as artists. He was an extreme he is an extremely intelligent and cool guy. This obviously upset those people who were close-minded and their ignorance expect <clears throat> and their ignorance expected him to to turn up in his stage attire, expecting him to not be able to tell the difference between entertainment and real life. His inclusion in the period of our history is mom- is momentous and really means a lot to us as artists. Again, D. Snyder fucking rocks. D. Snyder rules. Yeah. And Def Leppard is like, yeah, we they probably got a lot of help from him, so. Mm-hmm. So to round off part one we're gonna end it with cindy lopper who is fucking rad um she was born cynthia and stephanie lopper thornton on june 22nd 1953 in brooklyn new york uh she's mostly pop and new rave and she's been active since 1977 um and just this long and storied career her debut album she's so unusual had 
four top five hits with Girls Just Wanna Have Fun, Time After Time, She Bop, and All Through the Night. Uh, she's known for her light new wave music and spiky persona. The most unusual single, perhaps, was her masturbation ode, the incredibly catchy She Bop, um, which became a number three hit. Uh, its success helped uh, She's So Unusual go quadruple platinum by the time of the PMRC Senate hearing. Um, Lopper told the Howard Stern show that she had recorded the vocals while nude. Okay. A choice. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a choice. Uh, she has stated that um, what inspired the song was finding a copy of the Gays Men magazine, Blue Boy, which has been described as, quote, a full, co- full color, slick, gay version of Playboy magazine, unquote, lying around the recording studio providing the impetus for Shebop. Yeah. Cool. Um, nice. Yeah. Um, after the PMRC hearings, Lopper said to a crowd in Paris in 1987, This song was very scandalous for me. It was scandal! I brought shame upon my family. I was accused of driving in the fast lane. But anyway, <laughs> the thing I thought of was, thought of, I said, A bop a day keeps the doctor away, and that's absolutely true, so I recommend it. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway. Outstanding. Cindy- yeah. Again, she's fucking rad. Um, Lopper released her follow-up True Colors in September 1986, which contained the title track, a number one hit, and eventually went double platinum. Uh, she notched her last big radio hit in the U.S., I Drove All Night, in 1989, uh, when she put out A Night to Remember. Uh, that same year, the Shebop single went gold. Uh, since then, Lopper's been consistently putting out new records. The most recent was 2016's Detour. She's appeared in Queer as Folk and 30 Rock. She produced and wrote the music and lyrics for the Broadway adaptation of Kinky Boots, which got her a Tony. And it also, like, the original Broadway run has Stark Stance from Generation Kill as the main character. <laughs> God, that's, that's a pull. <laughs> I, I need to see this. <laughs> Yeah, um, anyway, Lopper has also toured with Cher, she's been inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame, uh, she holds Homeless for the Holiday benefit concerts that raise money for homeless queer youth, uh, she founded True Colors United, a charity that helps said homeless queer youth, she also works with, uh, Novartis and the National Psoriasis Foundation, uh, she's pretty open about having issues with psoriasis. And recently she announced that there's going to be a career retrospective documentary directed by Alison Elwood. So, looking forward to that. Cindy Lauper is one of the best people out there. So Yeah. yeah. Good place to end on. Um, I guess next time we're going to start with, um, I guess, the main rival, the Prince. Or, like, the girl group that was formed by uh, Rick James. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So yeah, you're gonna hear about the Mary Jane girls, Rob Zombie, Van Halen, and many more. Yeah. So anyway, Ryan, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me main well un, unknown if Twitter will survive the night, but <laughs> 
But for now, you can find me over on Twitter at Vagabond Haunted. That's where you can find the link tree, which has everything else. Yeah. Um, you can find me at LindsayM476 on Twitter, and you can get to pretty much all of my other social media bullshits from there. I, you know what? I don't think I ever linked my Tumblr. That's probably where we're gonna. End. Oh yeah, yeah. The Tumblr migration is on. You can also find. Yeah, I need to. Yeah, I also need to put the Tumblr on there. But yeah, haunted the vagabond on Tumblr as well. Yeah, and I'm Crash Four Seven Six on Tumblr. Um. <laughs> yeah. Damn, Jeff Bezos just driving Twitter into the ground like it's. But Jeff Bezos. He's he at least knows how to run a business. I guess. Elon Musk. Elon yeah. Musk. That fucking why, man. Why child. am I getting people mixed up? This is one of those days. It's Sunday. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Lindsay is sleepy. Uh- and anyways, you can also listen to our podcast or find all the information on the podcast over on its Twitter at UDND. U underscore DND. You can also email us at ytdadnd at gmail.com. That's where you can send us your comments, critiques, questions, and stories. Uh, you can also send us a friendship promo, be it an audio clip or proof for us to read. Our profile and our profile pic and our album art is by our good friend, Queen Ethelred. Um, our music is, is still Metallica, right? Uh, for now, it's Metallica. <laughs> Yeah. Oh man, Th- thanks, James. Appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm reporting on Treaty Four territory, the traditional lands of the Cree, Subtle, and Assiniboine, and homeland of the Métis. And I'm recording on the unceded territory of the Klele Tanay, and we are a member of the Corner Podcast Network. So for now, praise God. And hail Satan. <laughs>